today. And oh, also, if any of you um, have any questions, comments, concerns, or anything like that, I just encourage you to come talk to me. And that would be all I have to say. But we do have a gentleman here. Again, we're, I mean, just today's a theme of like uncommon loyalty and devotion. Malcolm, um, would you come on up with me? We're going to have to go into the light a little bit. We're going to do a little bit of filming and, and interview here because I really want you guys to hear. Oh, you need to stay right there. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If you, that's what I meant. Yeah. Wheel the chair up. So we need to set our stage a little bit and... and um, No, you're going to be facing people. So, quiet on the set. Action. And what did I do with my interview notes? All right, there. There we go. Many of you know Malcolm Robertson. Malcolm, how long? Oh, we need to give you a microphone. There you go. Malcolm, why don't you tell us just the, kind of the basics. How long you've been, you also were at APU. How long were you at APU? Uh, I was there as a teacher for 43 years. 43 years. Yes. As a seminary professor, what did you teach? Um, New Testament Greek, psychology, and various biblical books of the Bible over the years. So could you guys all imagine that I would check double, triple, and quadruple check my messages before I ever preach them. (laughs) Yes, we have him 43 years teaching this on the stage. Malcolm, uh, we want to talk a little bit right now about the way that you grew up and how it is that you became a Christian. And so I just want to tell you, you grew up in a home of uh, of divorced parents. And out of that, um, just tell us a little bit about what life looked like for you in the early years. Uh, For me, when I was 11 years old, uh, my parents called me in to talk and told me that they were getting a divorce and that um, I would have to go live with my grandparents. And so at the age of 11, I went to live with my grandparents. Um, They were members of the Methodist Episcopal Church South, so that's where I went uh, to church. As I think about those days, uh, I know I wanted to be a a good boy. Um, I I was kind of religious, but I I never heard anything about taking Christ as a personal Savior. Um, After I graduated from high school, I moved to San Diego to go to San Diego State University. Uh, Where I was staying, I was just one block from El Cajon Boulevard, and if you took El Cajon Boulevard and you kept going on it, you'd get right to uh, San Diego State University. And so, but I had to change, even though it was a straight road, had to change the bus tri- uh, twice. I noticed on the bulletin board that a, a, a fellow student by the name of Lyle Akers uh, was saying he could provide transportation at a reasonable cost. So I contacted him and he became... Uh, the person that picked me up and took me to the school and then brought me home. Now, didn't Lyle bother you about coming to church? Um, Going to the university and coming home, (laughs) Lyle just nagged me (laughs) and said, will you come to church with me? And uh, I just 
I said, no. I, I said, I, I, I've gone to church. I know about church. And, but he just kept nagging me and nagging me. And finally I said to him, all right, I'll go with you if you promise you won't nag me anymore <laughs> if I go once. And he said, okay. And so I said, well, what time will you pick me up? Well, he said, I thought we'd go to the evening service. And I said, okay. I really didn't know where we were going, but he picked me up, and he took me <clears throat> actually just about 10 blocks from where I was living. And as I drove up, it looked like a house, and then there was a sign, and it said Pilgrim Holiness Church. And um, uh, I felt kind of strange. I, it wasn't the kind of church I was used to. Uh, so I went in and was introduced to the pastor, and they, uh, it was for the youth meeting. And there was a young man my age by the name of Billy Mays. And he gave his testimony. And the Holy Spirit really moved on my heart and life in ways that I still remember vividly how strong it was as God drew me to him. And I made a commitment. I asked God to forgive me of every sin of which there were too many and uh, to come into my heart. And that changed my life. And I've thought of it often. Lyle Akers uh, is retired. He's up in Apple Valley now. But um, he and I went to college together, to Pacific Bible College in Huntington Park, which was the school that uh, Azusa became eventually when it moved from Huntington Park to Azusa. Uh, so I, I don't really worry about nagging people <laughs> uh, because I know that when God gets a hold of their hearts, they're going to be thankful Amen. And that's my, my message to you. You have somebody you'd really like to come to church, you'd like to see something happen in their lives, now be kind and make in your suggestions, but even a kind suggestion can be seen as nagging by them. Hmm. That's great. That's great. Um, one of the things that I was wondering uh, just right now is your trajectory before you knew Jesus and your trajectory in life afterwards. I mean, we're going to get to afterwards and what that looked like, but what was it that you wanted to do going to San Diego State University? What were you thinking? Well, um, I, uh, my eventual goal was to become an attorney. Ooh. That's, that, that's, uh, uh, I'd gone to school in Stockton, California, and uh, had become acquainted with an, an attorney firm because I'd gotten a little job uh, cleaning up the place. And uh, that, that was kind of my goal. Hmm. That's great. Well, tell us a little bit. One of the things, the stories I really want to tell is your, one of your war stories. But, and, and I want us to get there. But tell us a little bit about um, after you, you, you knew Christ, you began to go to Azusa. Is, is that the way it went? You went to San Diego State University to Azusa? I, I'm not quite sure what you're asking me. Oh, I'm just trying to get a timeline of events. You went from, you, while introduced you to this church, you, uh, you found Jesus. When I was in school in Huntington Park, mm-hmm. uh, that's when uh, I went into, and this was during World War II, yeah. I went into the, uh, the Army yeah. at and that time. Tell that story that you told me about. You became a noncombatant, and then you eventually moved up the ladder a little bit. <clears throat> um, for many today, it would be hard to understand the impact of patriotism during World War II. Um, Even though I was in Bible college and I I was planning to go into full-time Christian ministry, uh, 
at that time had what they called a 4D classification. Uh, and um, uh, so while others, young men, uh, were, were being drafted, I, I was not drafted. Uh, but the more I thought about it, I felt I should, I should, uh, I, I needed to be a part of doing what I could for my country. Uh, so I tried to join the Navy, but they turned me down. Um, and the reason they turned me down was because I, I was cross-eyed. I had a condition which they called uh, alternating strabismus. And one, one eye, and it's, it's still that way. And... Um, uh, so then I went to the draft board, and I said, what about the Army? And they said, well, you'll have to wait, and uh, we don't need anybody right now. Then suddenly uh, I, was, I was called. They gave me the exam, and um, when they were giving the exam, I, I asked them, I said, will this eye situation keep me out? And the person who was examining said, oh, no. And so very soon I found myself in Northern California, Camp Roberts, uh, being trained for the infantry. Um, during that process of that training, when they started putting bayonets on rifles and talked about killing people, the horror of it got so great to me, I talked to the uh, first lieutenant in charge of our group, and I told him, I said, I find this very difficult uh, to even think about it. And he said, well, why don't I have you talk to the committee? And I said, what committee? He said, well, I'll, I'll set it up. And so I went to the committee, and they asked me about how I felt. And, and um, I said, I was finding it difficult to think about, you know, killing anybody. And they said, well, we, um, we've got to send two people up to Tacoma, Washington. I said, how would you feel about uh, uh, being coming a noncombatant? And I said, I think I'd feel better about it. And so they said, fine. And the next thing I knew... I was on a train going up to Tacoma to Fort Lewis. Uh, had training there. I was trained to be a surgical technician. Then I was put on a train, went clear across the nation, then on an aircraft carrier, and arrived in, in Italy. Uh, I remember being in a compound. Uh, it was winter and it was cold. We didn't have zippers in those days, just buttons. And I had a hard time buttoning anything that needed to be buttoned. And my hands were so cold. And there were probably at least 1,000, maybe 1,500 of us in this big compound uh, just waiting for chow time, not knowing what was going to happen, where we were going to go, where we were going to be assigned. And um, uh, suddenly there was an officer and a sergeant who said, attention, and the sergeant said, this is officer so-and-so, said, we're looking for a volunteer. 1,500 people uh, burst out with laughter. Nobody <laughs> volunteers in the, in the Army if you've been there very long. Uh, and um, he went on, and he said, I need somebody who knows how to type. And in that instance, I, just, I said, here, sir. And then there was more laughter. And he, he said, come on forward. He said, how well do you type? I said, well, the last test... I took, I did 67 words a minute without error. So he said, come with me. We took a Jeep ride, went to headquarters, and walked into a place where they had a, a fire going. And he said, I want you to do some typing. I said, let me get my hands warm first. And 
Smart so move. I was trying to warm him, and he said, all right, type now. And he gave me something to type, stood right over my shoulder. Well, you know, here I am typing, and I started typing. Uh, I, I asked the Lord to help me. I hadn't done a lot of typing. He said, you're okay. He turned to the first sergeant, and he said, make this man a, a, a PFC. And so I got a promotion right away. Um, I would tell you, three months later, uh, and I, I, I never understand this, I started moving up. I was PB's PFC, and then a corporal, and then a buck sergeant, and then a staff sergeant. And the, the next thing I knew, I was the first sergeant of the uh, medical detachment to the 349th Infantry. And I had 159 uh, men under me with three other stations, aid stations, where soldiers were. And that was my miracle, military miracle uh, of... Uh, how could this be? The other young man that went up with me, uh, he finally made a, a PFC, but that's as far as he was able to get, which was typical if you were uh, with all of the people. That's private first class for any of you uh, military you. folk. I'm not military either. But um, Malcolm, tell us a little bit, over there in Germany, you were married, but it's also where you got your wedding ring. Can you tell us a little bit about... <coughs> Yes. What you had to go through to get that and why that's so significant. Well, um, I joined the Pilgrim Holiness Church, and whatever the, the church said was right, that was good for me. And one of the things that they said was, we do not wear gold. There's no wearing of gold. Um, the fact that, so that's it was good enough for me. So now I'm going to get married, and my wife wants, or the, my wife-to-be wants, just to pick out our rings, and I said, you can have a ring, but I won't wear a ring because I won't wear gold. Um, it, it almost broke us up just over the, uh, the <laughs> ring situation. Uh, so I, I had no ring. But when I was overseas, I got acquainted with a, uh, a lieutenant colonel who was the head of the chaplains uh, in Italy at that time, in northern Italy where we were. And um, uh, he wanted to know what my experience had been and so on. And he said, you're whom I'm looking for. I need somebody to teach a Bible class. We have 250 German prisoners. <laughs> and um, so I had this opportunity once a week to go in and teach. It, was, it, it amazed me how many of them spoke English, but uh, they had one who was a really fine translator. Um, my first week, there seemed to be no... Uh, well, I introduced myself, told them uh, who I was, where what my background was, told him about my wife, and on the third week, my translator said, uh, Sergeant, can I be open with you? I said, yes. He said, you're not going to get anywhere with any of these soldiers as long as you're uh, living in sin. And I said, what do you mean? <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm not living in sin. He said, well, you told him you have a wife, but he says, you don't have your ring on. He said, in Germany, if a man was going to be unfaithful, he would take his wedding ring off. He'd never be unfaithful. And I said, I don't have a wedding ring. And he said, well, you better get one. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just think the, just even the thought of you living in sin is hilarious because <laughs> that's just not going to happen. So I just love that. <laughs> All right. Carry on. Well, I wrote the letter. I sent a string. I said, get, get the ring. Uh, to my wife. 
Now, my wife had a best friend. Uh, you know her, uh, Marie, <laughs> my wife now. Uh, she and Marie and her sister, Marie's sister, Aline, went to Gensler Lee's, bought the ring, and they shipped it to me. And when that ring came, uh, and when I went to uh, teach the Bible class, uh, I, I spoke about the situation, how they had misunderstood. But I said, so there's no question. And I reached in my pocket and I pulled out the ring and I put it on. Uh, and by the way, this is the ring. That's the same ring. Same ring. From World War II. Yes. And uh, I put that uh, ring on. And um, uh, 250 German prisoners cheered. <laughs> cheered. Um, these were men who didn't know if their homes existed. They had no, no idea. They were really in despair. Nobody knew what to do with them at the time. How, how, do, we, how do we take care of them? Uh, but they were hearing the word of the Lord. So let me connect the dots here. Lyle Akers, and back when he's in college in San Diego, is persistent that Malcolm's got to go to church with him. Malcolm eventually said yes and then said yes to Jesus. And look at the chain of events and things that began to happen in his life. I mean, we know the later story because we told it about a seminary professor for 43 years, also the head of a foundation called Thaddeus that um, does overseas missions work, and just an incredible ministry. Also, Sunday school teacher after Sunday school teacher, uh, pastored at churches. Also, at one point, just for a very brief moment, you were the dean of a seminary and the president of another university. Isn't that right? No. Oh, okay. No, no. I held the Robert T. Anderson Chair of Administration Mm. for 11 years. I gave one afternoon and evening a week Mm. to California Baptist University. Gotcha. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and then there's one other uh, dot I'd like to connect. Later on, you went to Claremont uh, for some higher education. And at one point, you were in a Bible study. And tell me where those members of that Bible study ended up. When I was going to Claremont uh, Graduate School, uh, I met uh, two other uh, men who were also going to school, but we all lived in the same compound in Upland, California. Um, and so we, we got acquainted, and they loved the Lord. And um, one of them uh, had a friend up, in, up the hills, up uh, straight up Euclid there in, in, uh, in Upland that would like a Sunday school. And so the three couples of us went up and we started teaching a Sunday school, inviting people in uh, and um, while we were going to, to graduate school. And um, we, we all finished graduate school at the same time. Uh, I became the dean at uh, Azusa. Uh, Frank Hieronymus became the dean at Westmont College, and Bob Ross became the dean at Wheaton College. And we, we had that association. Uh, they have both preceded me to heaven, but they were wonderful people. We informed each other what was going on. We, we shared ideas with each other. Uh, in athletics, we're great competitors, but <laughs> in, in academic and spiritual things, we were brothers in Christ. Amen. And you just begin to... 
ask yourself what other seminary professors are out there. What other people are out there that have yet to know Jesus? And that begins our message today, really. And so, Malcolm, we want to thank you. Uh, Can we give Malcolm a round of applause? And then, before we... Before you go back to your seat, we'd just like to pray for you. So let's, let's pray. Father, uh, we just thank you for, again, a man of uncommon loyalty to you and devotion to you. And God, for the thousands and thousands of people who are pastors now and who are working in Christian ministry or who have gone through seminary and are influencing their communities who have been trained by this man right here. God, you raise people up for your work, and we just are so thankful for that. We're thankful for Malcolm, for his faithfulness, his devotion, and his love to you. And God, now that he's experiencing some health issues, we just simply ask that that you would be with him, God, that you would comfort him, and God, that you would give him the breath that he needs. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Malcolm. And one of the reasons we wanted to talk to Malcolm today is because our message today, whoops, well, get him. You got that? Okay. Today we're going through, you know, the Sermon on the Mount. And um, today we're talking about the verse about being salt and light. And I just kept thinking, uh, when Malcolm and I uh, first had this conversation about what his life looked like, I just kept thinking, salt and light, salt and light. This is what Lyle Akers, this man who, whom none of us know, impacted him to impact thousands. And so, we are just so thankful for, for, um, for one, for God impressing on this man Lyle's life to reach out to Malcolm. And two, for Malcolm, also, many of you don't know this, but Malcolm helped purchase the property that we're in today. Many of you don't know that. Some of you do. And I said, Malcolm, why didn't you purchase the property next door? He was just a young gun on the committee at the time. So, so before we dig into it, I think that question needs to be asked. What other Malcolm Robertsons are out there that simply just don't know Jesus yet? What other seminary professors are out there? Who else is going to go teach POWs? (laughs) That's amazing. That would never happen today, by the way. Teaching 250 POWs, by the way, the book of John is what he taught. Just absolutely amazing. So we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and one of the things we need to remember as we dig into this is that Jesus' audience was not Christians in 2013 right? It's applicable to us, and we could totally glean so much and and change the way we live as a result of the Sermon on the Mount. It's extremely important. But his audience was first century Jewish people, and that becomes so important as we dig into this today. So the very first thing that that I just want to remind us of, and and I'm going to remind us of this over the next few weeks as we're in this, the premise of the Sermon on the Mount starts in, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, where Jesus starts preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So repent means change your mind, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So God's reign on earth is now near. So God is going to be accessible for you to live your life in God's kingdom. Another reality. And so for Jesus to talk about the Sermon on the Mount, what he's doing is explaining what this new reality is like. And the Beatitudes, which we just went through, um, explain what you become in your transformation 
in following Jesus. Once you begin to follow Jesus, you begin to be transformed. So instead of going right through this verse, what I want to do is end up on this verse today. So flip with me, or if you're in your Bible apps, to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to start all the way back at the almost beginning here. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, tells the story of a man named Abram, later to become Abraham. Abram is key. He's the father of the Jewish people. He is key in understanding what is going on here. So God, remember in the garden, what happens when people sin? What does God do? He curses. Not, he doesn't say foul language. He doesn't do that. But he curses the man and the woman because of what they've done. He said, man, the, the ground will be hard to work and women childbearing will become painful. And, and there's all these different curses that, that he gave. He even gave a curse to the serpent um, who deceived Adam and Eve. So God curses these people because of their sin, because of what they have done. But now in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God does something very interesting. And follow along with me. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you And whoever curses you, I will curse. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So this is sort of God's first reversal of the curse. The curse of the garden, the curse of sin, the curse that that has has, um, handicapped all of us, that curse. This is God's first reversal of that. He says, Abram, I'm going to make you a blessing to all peoples on earth, to all nations, to everybody. You will be a blessing. What is a curse and what is a blessing? A curse is is a projection of evil onto somebody else or a projection of bad onto somebody else. So wishing evil for somebody. Not like witchcraft or anything like that. Just simply wishing evil on somebody. How many of us have cursed other people in our lives? You're all liars. Come on. I'm raising my hand. You can't lie. We're in church. I'm going to tell Jesus on you. But at one point in our lives, each of us have probably done that. We've probably wished something bad on somebody else. And a blessing is projecting good on somebody else. So bringing good into other people's lives. And so this is going to be a community of people that bless others. And this is what God is telling Abram he's going to do. Now, how many of you would say that you've done that? And you guys are all, all of you have. Come on. Raise your hands. Are you guys all sleeping? So God's people were originally supposed to be a blessing to all people on earth. That is their calling. That is what God told them to do. And along the way, God raised up people. And we have to look at people like Moses. And he said, we're gonna, I'm going to bring you into a land that I'm going to show you. And he, he brought them into the promised land. And by the way, when he talks about the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, simply meaning that there's going to be food in abundance there. When you walk around, and I'm going to talk about this next week, by the way, at our potluck, um, when you walk around Israel, there are things on the ground. It's lettuce growing on the ground. There were Palestinian people just picking lettuce off the ground, throwing it into baskets, washing it real quick, and eating it out of the ground. Just randomly. You know, we're driving by, they're like, oh, they're harvesting lettuce. I mean, a land of streams and springs and lettuce just growing randomly off the ground, fruit, just, fruit trees just growing. I mean, this is the land of milk and honey, and God is going to show it to these people. And so God's people are moved into there, but they're supposed to be a blessing along the way. In this, God gave people laws. God gave them laws about how to treat outsiders and what you should do with foreigners. 
And he told them that they're basically to be a blessing to these foreigners and to bring them into their community, to circumcise them and bring them into their community. And essentially, this is going to be the nation that's going to show off God's glory to the rest of the world. It's going to show off God's light to the rest of the world. This would be the nation that people would see and begin to come and say, yes, I want to follow this God. This would be the nation. But eventually, what happens is God, not God, the the Israelites began to forsake their calling. They begin to forsake this blessing. In other words, they begin to turn their backs on it, and and they begin to, to do things like oppress foreigners, oppress aliens. And even in the scriptures, God even says over and over and over again, are you not the Amorites to me? Are you not the Egyptians to me? Are you not like these people to me? Don't you understand that the whole world matters to me? Even though you are my chosen people to be a blessing to the rest of the world, you have to understand that the whole world matters. And sometimes in our faith, in our religiosity, we can sort of become consumed as like almost egotistical, like, oh, God has this special blessing for me and forget all these other people. But we forget that we're blessed to be a blessing. We are blessed so that we can go out and be a blessing to other people. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, this is, this is what Isaiah says or this is what God is saying through Isaiah, is it too small of a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This was in God's plan. Blessed to be a nation, or blessed to be a blessing for all peoples. Now in Isaiah, he's saying, you people are going to bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is God's plan, that his people would actually do this. But what happens? Over and over and over again, we see in Scripture, the Israelites sort of narrowing their reach. First, they're kind of opening up to people to come in, and then they begin to narrow and narrow and narrow their reach. And, um, there's even this time where they talk about Solomon basically reverting to Egypt and doing forced labor. He was known as the forced labor king of Israel. And so there was all these points in Israel's history where they kind of forsake and turn their back on that blessing. They weren't a blessing to people. They were a curse to people at times. And this is best illustrated, I think, in the story of Jonah. I tell this story to my kids every single night. And I never really tell them the end of the story. I always just tell them the fun part where he gets eaten by a whale or a big fish. But this is the story of Jonah. It's basically just a few chapters long, and I could sum it up like this. Jonah gets called by God. He's a great prophet, and he gets called by God. He's from the northern region. He goes down into Joppa, which is in the south, and and he gets called by God to go to the Ninevites. He's scared. He has good reason to be scared. I don't want to gross many of you out. I tell, in youth ministry, I always tell what the Ninevites did to people. Um, Anybody want to hear a story? This might be gross, Okay. So what they would do is they would cut open your intestines while you're still alive, throw a sedated rat in there and stitch you back up and wait for that rat to wake up. And guess what would happen? Yeah, they, it was scary, okay? It was really scary to go to Nineveh. And so when God said, go to Nineveh, what do you think Jonah was thinking? Yeah, right. You're crazy, God. And so he left. He, got, he went to Tarshish, which just means the ends of the earth, the furthest way away. He gets on a boat. It gets all shaky and rocky. And my, <laughs> Desiree's laughing because every night Lucy's, says, shaky, rocky, shaky, rocky, because I shake the bed. I don't shake my kids. This sounds bad. I gently rock them as if they were in a boat. 
And they laugh hysterically. It's good. Oh, man. Anyways, so Lucy says, shaky, rocky, shaky, rocky. And, and they throw Jonah off the boat because he knows that he's living in disobedience and complete rebellion to God. And he gets in the water, and this big fish swallows him up. And he prays. And they also made up a story about this fish who was um, bigger than all the other fish. And, and everybody made fun of him, but God always told me he had a special purpose. And one day, this person fell into the water. And anyways, I made that story up. It's not in the Bible. Um, my kids love it, though. So anyways, he takes Jonah and he spits him back out. I love that the boat was taking him to the ends of the earth and God used his creature to swallow this guy and take him back and spits him back out onto dry land. And he ends up going to Nineveh. And guess what? They put on sackcloth and ashes and they repent. And, they, and this is like the northern region of Iraq. Um, I, Kabul, I think, is where it is now. The northern region of Iraq. And it was known just for how evil it was. And so... Jonah goes up there, and then after everybody repents, after everybody finds God in this most powerful way, Jonah goes up on the top of a hill, looks over the city, and sulks, and says, God, I knew that if I came here, you would do this. And God's like, wait, shouldn't you be happy? Aren't these people worth something? Aren't people worth something? And Jonah's whole point was, look, these people were wicked. Look, these people are not good Jewish people. You shouldn't be saving them. They should be gone. You should burn them up. Throw down fire and brimstone, God. Shouldn't you do that? And God said, aren't there so many? Like, what about all these people down here? And then God causes this little vine to grow over Jonah and give him shade. And then a caterpillar comes and eats it off. And um, Jonah says, oh, I could just die because of how miserable I am that this piece of shade left me. And God used this imagery of saying, you're so upset because this piece of shade has left you, but what about my people? And the story just ends. Jonah doesn't come to some great grand realization that people should know God and that he's supposed to be blessed to be a blessing, that he's supposed to help these people figure out life. He doesn't come to that realization at all. The story just ends. It just ends. With Jonah wishing that these people were dead, but God's saying, no, these people are valuable to me, to, to me. Do you remember, I called you to be a blessing. I called you to go to the ends of the earth. This is the entire story of, Jesus, of Jonah. It's really interesting that if you were to compare the story of the prodigal son, that they would actually come pretty close together in this because the prodigal son's brother actually um, was pretty upset <laughs> that, that, uh, that the father took back. The, the lost son. So there's, there's some continuity there. So in any case, the story illustrates God's desire to reach the ends of the earth, what God wants for his people. So when Jesus comes to this scene, there's this great reversal of this exclusion that the Israelites have been practicing. We have to remember their religious laws at the time. They would say, okay, God says follow the Sabbath. And what they would do is say, okay, Sabbath is is Saturday, and so they would say Sabbath is, is right here, and sundown Friday to, um, to sundown Sunday. And they would say, okay, so here's the rules, you guys. We can't flip on a light switch. We can't do this. We can't work. We can't make our animals work. I mean, it, literally, laws that are not in the Bible, just tons of them they created around the Sabbath. That's called making a fence around the law. Just so you don't stumble and you don't break the law, you say, okay, the line is now over here instead of over there. And what they did was they were so burdened down by the religious system of their day 
that they became exclusionary. You have to follow this strict set of laws in order to belong. And what Jesus is saying, no, you need to belong. You just simply need to belong and have the right heart, not do the right things. And yeah, once you have the right heart, you'll do the right things. Because once you're blessing, it's almost impossible to curse somebody. And of course, you've you got to have the right heart and you'll do the right things. But Jesus comes along and in an incredible reversal of this exclusionary way of religious life, this burdened down, weighed down life, he says, after he has died and then resurrected, he says to his disciples this, the 11 disciples went into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Then they saw him and worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to him and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of age. The Great Commission is kind of like the uh, Jewish version of, of the Shema. We talk about Deuteronomy 6, where God says, as you walk with your children, as you go, bring them up in the way of the Lord. Well, this word go, and maybe Malcolm, um, correct me if I'm wrong, because he was a New Testament professor of Greek for 43 years, and so if I'm wrong, I'm sure he'll let me know, right, Malcolm? Um, this word go in, in the New Testament right here, where it says go make disciples, really can be translated to as you go, as you're on your path, as you're on your way, make disciples. We always look at the Great Commission a lot of times in the lens of the church as foreign missions. Who are we going to send to India? Who are we going to send out here? And that's great, and that absolutely applies. But it applies to us too, because it's as we are walking through life, as we are on our path, we have to be making disciples, making other followers of Jesus. And that's what, that's what Lyle did with Malcolm, and that's what we're called to do with our children, and that's what we're called to do in our lives. But notice in here he says, Go to all nations. All nations. Where else did God say that the, the people would be a blessing to all nations? With Abram, right? And then back in Isaiah, he, God reminded his people, you're going to be a blessing to all nations. And then in Acts 1.8, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. God has a heart for the entire world. We know the Bible it says in, in 2 Peter chapter 3 that God is not slow in keeping his promises as some people wait. I mean, I'm sorry, that just, I jumbled that in my mouth, so forget everything you just heard up from like three seconds ago. Um, God is not slow in keeping his promises as some people think, but he's patient waiting for each person to come to repentance. He's patient with us. Because God has a heart for the whole world. And to illustrate this, in the book of Acts, I love the book of Acts. It's just so stinking interesting. Acts chapter 8. You know, I'm not going to read it all. I'm just going to tell you the story because we're running way late on time this morning. Um, Acts chapter 8, there's the story of this Ethiopian eunuch. And he's royalty. He works for King Candace, uh, I'm sorry, Queen Candace in Ethiopia. And um, he begins reading the scriptures out loud. And this was a common practice. If you could read, you read out loud. This was a common practice in the first century. And he said, I wish somebody were around to explain this to me. 
And there's a man named Philip who's originally one of the disciples who knows a, um, what good Jewish law is, was raised in good Jewish thinking, and knows that eunuchs are unclean. A eunuch, by the way, is somebody who is missing some essential parts of reproduction for manhood. Okay. Um, so you know. And, so, there, so he knows that a eunuch is unclean. He knows that circumcision isn't going to happen with this guy, as good Jewish law says it should happen. But this guy is reading the scriptures, and then he says, and I, I wish I knew what this all meant. And Philip came, and he filled in the rest of the story with Jesus' life. And this man said, is there any reason why I can't be baptized right now? And a good Jewish person would have said, yeah, I could think of a ton of reasons why you can't be baptized right now. First of all, you're Ethiopian. Second of all, you know, and they would have just gone down the list. You're a eunuch. Third of all, you know, they just would have gone down that list. But God has reversed this great exclusionary practice and has become inclusionary because he wants the rest of the world to come to know him. He wants hearts to be transformed so that the rest of the world can know him. And because somebody gave him the good news, because Philip went out of his comfort zone to talk to this man and gave him the good news, he went back to Ethiopia. And today they say Ethiopia is something like 72% Christian. And a lot of people, tradition traces it back to the Ethiopian eunuch. Now we have no idea whether or not that's true, but that's what tradition says. Because someone decided mercy over purity. So today I want to begin to end us by looking at this verse. Matthew five thirteen through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. Remember back in Isaiah where it says, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. The town cannot... Uh, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives its light to everyone in the house. In the same way, your light, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, the reason why I went through all of that to get here is because we are to carry on the blessed to be a blessing idea. And that's what it means to be salt of the earth, that we're to be blessings to other people that are around us. Now, the salt of the earth, it, it's funny, they said it, it could be trampled underfoot if it's no, no longer salty. And what they would do is take salt, and they would, um, they would pack salt on cow manure and other manure, and they'd throw it in their fire, and it'd be like a duraflame. It would keep it burning for hours and hours and hours, and they would do various things like heat their homes with it. And if it was lost the saltiness, they just threw it on out and trampled underfoot. And in youth ministry, I told people Jesus is saying that if you're not used for your purpose, you're just a pile of horse poo. Right? <laughs> so take nothing else. Take that. I'm kidding. Take that from our service today. But again, he reminds his people that they are salt and light. That you're not supposed to be hidden. You're not supposed to keep this life secret. That you're supposed to follow Jesus in ways that are uncomfortable. Like talking to an Ethiopian eunuch. That would have been super uncomfortable. I mean, offended all good Jewish sensibilities of the day. 
And again, remember what I said, we have to remember Jesus' audience was to first century Jews. Very religious people. As soon as Jesus would have said salt, they would have thought covenant. Because all the sacrifices with God were supposed to be sealed in this covenant of salt. God's people would have put salt on these sacrifices. They would have thought God's promise. They would have thought of all this stuff. Really super religious people, they need to be reminded of this. Jesus was telling them, Jesus was telling these super religious Jews of the day, don't forget that when you begin to live in my kingdom, when you begin to live in this alternate new reality of me being present all the time, of heaven on earth, that you're salt and light. And that what you have, you need to give away. And what you have, you need to let other people see. And what you have, you need to be a blessing to others that they might become to be salt and light too. I love that Jesus is telling super religious people that they've got to be salt and light. Super religious people who maybe go to church every Sunday need to be reminded that they're salt and light, right? Some of you didn't get the joke on that. But sometimes we need to remember that we're blessed to be a blessing. When you bless someone, it's almost impossible to harm them. When you bless someone, it's almost impossible to curse them. Maybe today God's whispering to you that it's that time to get out of your comfort zone. It's that time to get out of that chair. It's time to make a difference to the ends of the earth. Or maybe just the end of your office. Or maybe just the end of your hallway at your home. Or maybe just in the bed, in the next to you, person sleeping in your bed next to you, that you need to be a blessing to them. I love this quote by Mother Teresa, and it's very misunderstood, but I'm going to try and help us understand it. She said, if I become a saint, I will surely be one of darkness. I will continually be absent from heaven to light, to, to light the light of those in darkness on earth. I think she really got it in this point. Now, there's some stuff that she said that I wouldn't necessarily say from the pulpit, but I think she really got it at this point. That were to be a light, and that she always lived her life as a light to those who needed it. And she said, even if, even if the church wants to give me sainthood and whatever that means, I'll reject heaven and I'll go back to darkness so I could tell people about the light of Jesus. I'll live in that state so I could tell people that. Now, for some of us, that might mean that we just need to confront some darkness in our own lives. But what I think she got is, when you're the light, walking into the darkness and illuminating it just seems like the most natural most obvious thing to do. So today, I would simply pray that that would be us. I think of Lyle, Lyle, the man that, um, the man that led Malcolm into um, into this church service. He was a light. How can we be that light to others? Let's pray. Father, today as we uh, begin to think about all this stuff, to think about the fact that you have called us to be a light to the world, that you have called us to be salt. God, that you have called us into places of darkness to shine our light. God, as we think about all of that, we can't help but to think that there might be a question here like, what is it, yes or no? Are you going to do it? So God, there's some of us here today who simply just need to say yes to you. 
yes, Jesus, that we'll begin to surrender our kingdoms to yours. We'll begin to live by yours. And God, will begin to follow you and in so doing become salt and light. Be a blessing to those who need blessings. So God, we just pray that you would um, make us more into your image every day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.